somebody sent me these um, pictures, and um, I really like them, and I wanted to share with them with you because they really speak about relationship. Notice the pizza. Isn't that precious? Every mom in the world. I know, I'll give you a minute to read it. Wow, really? precious. Just want to tear up here. And my favorite. That's amazing, isn't it? Let's stand together and I'm going to read the yellow and you're going to read the white and this is from the book of James if you're not familiar with the Bible. The best thing to do is go to the end of the Bible and uh, you'll that the right at the last book is Revelation. Just work your way forward a little bit and you'll come to the book of James. And this is what it says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace, and therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers or sisters. The one who speaks against his brother or sister judges his brother or sister, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? You know, one of the things I like about the Bible is how blunt it can be at times. You adulterous people, 
you sinners, you double-minded. I mean, talk about in your face. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and because you first loved us, and you demonstrated your love for us with such extravagance and such generosity and such graciousness, in Jesus Christ, we can't help but love you. And then you give us your spirit inside of us, James tells us, that you dwell in us. And Lord, everything that you've accomplished in Jesus and made available in Jesus through the Spirit is applicable to our lives. And so we ask this morning as we look at your word that you would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds and hearts to comprehend and understand, and most importantly, that by the power of the Holy Spirit as we leave this room, as we leave this property, and go back into our homes and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our places of education and where we get our services to live out what it means to be Christ followers. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Why don't you be seated? Now this is, as I said, our fourth installment in our relationship series. We have two more to go. And I want to give you this morning four principles. Four from this text. Four principles that I have, that have become important in my life, and they're not mine. I have adopted them, and I have adapted them over the years, but these are four principles that have been very important in my life, and has helped me in my personal life and my relationships. And I want to share them with you today. Now, they're not easy. They're not easy. But if we learn to work on them, if we practice them, if we apply them, then they will go a long way in helping us build healthier relationships. Now, I want to illustrate each of these principles through examples from the life of Jesus. So here's the first one. The ability to maintain... A clear sense of who we are. Now, Jesus knew who he was. Jesus was not trying to figure out his identity or needing his ego stroked. When he went to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 and he says to them, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Or, Who do you say that I am? Jesus knew exactly who he was. To his mother Mary and Joseph in the temple incident, Jesus said these words, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And then in John chapter 6, there's a very interesting story where Jesus feeds the 4,000 or the 5,000. And after they're so enthralled with the fact that their physical needs have been met, the Bible tells us that they wanted to make him king. And John says these words, and perceiving, this is Jesus, perceiving then that they were about to come and to take, and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew himself. Now, maintaining a clear sense of who we are is one of the most difficult things to do. Matter of fact, it takes a lifetime to accomplish it, but if we work at it, it will happen. 
And I think the other thing that's true, that throughout our lifetimes, throughout my lifetime, throughout your lifetime, throughout our lifetimes, there are many different versions of who we are. But I think it is safe to say that if we are going to maintain a clear sense of who we are, first of all, we got to figure out who we are. Now, here's the relational piece. I'm going to give you what sounds like two very contradictory statements. The first one is this, that other people cannot tell us who we are. Finding out who we are is ours to do. It is our responsibility to get whole on our own. Nobody else can do that. Nobody else can tell us who we are. Now, here's the conflicting statement. We can only know who we are with the help of other people. Now, I want you to hold those two intentions. Nobody else can tell us who we are, but at the same time, we can only really discover who we truly are with the help of other people. Now, what I mean is simply this. One of the most fundamental drives, needs, that you and I have is for connection with or to somebody significant. That's one of the drives that we have, to be important to somebody. That's who we want to be. Now, being important to somebody else, to a significant other, like a spouse or Uh, those closest to us, a friend or whatever the case may be, or a sibling, whatever the case may be, to, to be important to somebody else is not really a virtue if we do not know who we are. Now, in emotionally committed relationships like marriage, like close friendships, it's where you and I find out who we are. And often, who we find out we are is not who we actually thought we were. You follow that? And what's interesting, it is usually those closest to us, like our spouses, our close friends, our family, it's those closest to us that figure it out first, before we even do. And when they start telling us who we are, and who we really are, we begin to think to ourselves, well, maybe we're really not being seen or heard or being understood for who we are. But what's really happening is this, is that we are actually being seen and heard more accurately than we've been ever seen or heard before. And those closest to us, our spouses, our family, our close friends, are often the ones that figure it out first. Now, the challenge at that moment, the challenge at that moment for most of us is that we can't stand the message that we are receiving about ourselves. We don't like the message. We'd rather another message. We got a a different message about ourselves, and we don't like the one that we're receiving. And one of the tasks 
of learning who we are is to begin to learn to stand the message. Accepting who we are. James says this in verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Now, our second principle is this one. The ability to regulate our own anxiety. Now, I want you to look at your neighbor and say, you have anxiety. Now, I want you to look back at your neighbor and say, I have anxiety. Now, just because we have anxiety does not mean that, we are, that we've lost our minds or we're in some situation that is other than normal. But normal is a relative term, right? Because if I'm normal, then you're not. And that's probably a good case, actually. And if you're normal, then I'm not. And if we're normal, then other people are not. Normal is a relative term, but I think we all understand the grid of mental health. So what do I mean by anxiety? What do I mean by that? That the truth is that we all feel a measure of anxiety at some point or other in our lives, some less and some more, depending on the situation and the circumstances. So when I talk about anxiety, I'm talking about this. Care, distress, restlessness, anxiousness, uneasiness, discomfort, pain, uncertainty, worry, tension, angst, apprehension, doubt, fretfulness, nervousness, and panic. Has anybody ever had some of those? I certainly have had probably all of them. Anything that is the opposite of assurance, calmness, composure, contentment, being at ease, happiness, and peace is anxiety. Anything that is the opposite of those. Now, Jesus was able to regulate his anxiety in a profound way. For example, if you'll notice in Matthew chapter 24, verse 23, that Jesus often went away from those who were closest to him to deal with his own anxiety. Verse 23 of Matthew 14 says, And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain to by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. We even see in one of the most traumatic moments of Jesus' life in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the same thing. Where Jesus removes himself to deal with his own anxiety. Matthew 26 says, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. Now, regulating our, ang- our own anxiety is the ability to self-soothe. Now, you're not going to like the illustration, but regulating our own anxiety, the ability to self-soothe, is the ability to lick our own wounds. It's the ability to soothe our own hearts. It's the ability to take care of ourselves emotionally. And one of the reasons why this is so important for us to learn to regulate our own anxiety is is because it's probably the most loving thing we can do to the people around us. It's the most loving thing that we can do for those who are closest to us. Freaking out and getting our radioactivity on everyone else is not loving. Shutting down and not communicating is not loving. Controlling other people and our, the people we love the most with our moods is not loving. Manipulating those people who we love the most in the world is not loving. And I wonder sometimes if one of the reasons why God says to us twice in the Bible, in Psalm 55 verse 22, and also in 1 Peter, he says these words to us, he says, casting all of your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I wonder if one of the reasons why God does that and wants us to put our anxiety on him is because he's the only one that can absorb my anxiety and your anxiety. When we regulate our own anxiety, we learn to take care of ourselves emotionally. And by doing that, We give the people we love the most freedom because it means that they do not have to prop us up. Listen to what James says. He says, what causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, and I think he's referring here, not literal murder, but what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And this is as true with the currency of emotion as it is with monetary currency. The third principle is this, learning to control our reactivity. Now, of course, Jesus is a master at this. So in John's gospel, we have the account of where Jesus stands before Pilate. And Pilate said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. And so Pilate said to him, 
Will you not speak to me, but do you not know that I have authority to release you or the authority to crucify you? Now, Isaiah, Isaiah predicted this. Isaiah said that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now hold that. But there were other times when Jesus was highly reactive, where Jesus was highly emotive, and where Jesus was highly responsive. We love the story. Excuse me, where Jesus goes into the temple. And we know what it says. He says he was angry. Matter of fact, one version says that he made a whip out of some cords. And he entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the money changers' tables and the seats of those who sold pigeons. I mean, quite a spectacle. And then, Matthew tells us about a story where Jesus comes up to a fig tree. And he comes up to this fig tree, and he's hungry, and he's looking for some figs, some fruit, and all that the tree has is leaves. And Jesus curses the fig tree, and the Bible says that the fig tree immediately withered. Why? Because it had the appearance of fruit, but really didn't have fruit at all. Hypocrisy. Jesus learned to control his reactivity. But all of these, the story of the temple and the story of the fig tree, tell us that sometimes... Being reactive and emotional and responsive, and in this case, with anger, can be the only appropriate response. And Jesus learned to control his reactivity. Now, when it comes to anger, which is sometimes problematic, do you ever notice what the Bible says? James says this, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then Peter says, be angry and sin not. And Jesus learned to control his reactivity. He taught us that emotions like anger and grief can be positive and they can be creative. Matter of fact, it was the the emotions of anger and grief mixed together (coughs) that was responsible for Jesus' reaction at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus was angry because death was not the original design. For somebody to die young and premature was not a part of the original plan by God. He was angry. At death. And then the Bible says he wept because of grief. Jesus knew how to control his reactivity. And keeping our reactivity down 
is like taking a sedative. It keeps us calm. It's the difference between being run by our feelings as opposed to being able to regulate our feelings. Somebody will say, well, I'm entitled to my feelings. And for those who are run by their feelings, we say, absolutely you are, and you can keep them. But that's the difference between having feelings and our feelings having us. Somebody said this, when anger flares like a thunderbolt, it can take down the whole forest incinerating our relationships and requiring a major cleanup. That's what happens when we are run by our emotions and our feelings have us. It becomes ugly. Now put your seatbelt on for a moment. One of the downsides of living in the era of Twitter and Instagram is that with such immediacy of communication, gone is the discretion that is required examining our responses before we make them. And when we act out of our immediate impulses and respond instantly without thinking, the time needed to sort out what is at stake is lost. And we spew our frustrations and dissatisfaction into the air without a a thought or respect for anybody else. And James says this, James says, do not speak evil about one another. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Uncontrolled reactivity is a problem. Now here's our final principle. And I want to remind you that these are principles that I have Adapted and adopted in my life, and they have helped me more than any others when it comes to my personal life and when it comes to my personal relationships. The last one is our willingness to tolerate discomfort for growth. Now, we know what that means, right? That means no pain, no gain. We cannot go up without giving up. And we cannot get up without growing up. And I say to young couples all the time when they're premarital counseling, I say one of your journeys is this. For the rest of your life, your life is about learning to grow up. And I'm 57 years old, and I'm still learning to grow up. Now, our willingness to tolerate discomfort for growth is also known as clean pain. Clean pain. Now, and again, we look to Jesus for this. 
Jesus was the master. The master at clean pain. Hebrews says this. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated as a result at the right hand of God, right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, another word for clean pain is discipline. And again in Hebrews, we read this. For the moment, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, every parent, every child, every teenager, every adult, every athlete, every business owner, every student understands this. No pain, no gain. In order to go up, you got to give up. And the same is true with growing up. you got to give up some stuff. That's what relationships are for. That's what those closest to us help us with. That's what close friendships do. Emotionally committed relationships are not just to make you and I feel safe and secure and give us a sense of identity. Emotionally committed relationships are people-growing organisms. Emotionally committed relationships are people-growing units, are people-growing environments. And coupled together with that, the willingness to tolerate discomfort for growth teaches us that rather than us working on our relationships, allow our relationships to work on us. Allow our marriages to work on us. Allow our families to work on us. Allow our close friends, our relationships with them to work on us. Because those relationships, they're people growing units. They're people growing organisms. Listen to what James says. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. And your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Now I want to finish with a story. I want to tell you a story 
about a family. A family where there was an infant death. A family where the second child was born healthy, but two months into the child's life, she died of what we call now SIDS. Now, in the early 50s, grief wasn't dealt with and processed like it is today. And the parents were instructed to do this. Let the past be in the past and just move on. But you and I both know that when grief and other things are not processed properly, it lingers. And it affects everything and everyone in that family unit. Now the family that I just described to you is the family that I grew up in. My second oldest sibling, her name was Enid, and when she was two years old, she died. Now what's interesting is I never found out that I had a two-year-old, that I had a two, sorry, two-month, did I say two years? Two months, sorry. I wasn't told that I had an older sister who died at two months of age until I was 15 years old. This is the home that I grew up in where the death of a child, of an infant, was not processed properly. And the death is buried literally as if it never happened. When I was back in Newfoundland this summer, my brother told me, we, I, we, I'm trying to get in touch with my past, and so we went across the island of Newfoundland, and I visited, I made the kids come with me, and visited all of the grave sites of my relatives. But there is, not only is there no tombstone or headstone for my sister Enid's grave, the grave is lost. Apparently, only one of my cousins knows where it is, and we're going to find it. But isn't that, isn't that a profound image of a two-month-old that is like she never existed? We never talked about it. As I said, I never found it until I was 15. And in my family of origin, there was this underlying sadness. There was this fear of further loss when we went out and did something, my mom or my dad, particularly my mom would say, as we would say to our children, now be careful, but I realize now as an adult that she, that had sort of a double entendre because she wasn't just saying that she wanted us to be safe. What she was really saying is, I don't want to grieve another loss of a child. You follow me? And when you grow up in a home like that, uncertainty ensues. And there's a reluctance toward exploring life. You become more cautious. You become more careful. Now, here's my point. Growing up in that home, and I haven't, couldn't realize this until as I become a mature adult. Growing up in a home like that, children unconsciously absorb it. 
We don't know what it is. We don't know what the problem is, but we know something is wrong. We know something isn't right. We know there's something going on in the family unit, but nobody's talking about it. And every child, me and you, because it's never talked about and it's hidden and we want to just leave it in the past and not deal with it, every child thinks that the sadness and the anxiety is their fault. People are sad because of me. There's something wrong in the family. It must become because of me. And that's the way kids are. We unconsciously assume there's something wrong with us. And I couldn't realize, I couldn't figure out why I had this low-grade anger all the time. And every now and then it would just explode and I'd get my radioactive anger and anxiety over everybody else. But the most times it would just sit there and simmer. And I could never figure out why I was so deeply insecure. Until I realized. One of my siblings, every now and then, I'll watch them. And they have this sadness. And it's not because they're sad. It's because they grew up in a family where sadness wasn't processed. And while they didn't know what it was, they assumed it was them. Now, it can be the death of an infant that's not processed properly. It can be an affair that has not been dealt with. It can be an addiction that's being hidden. Even when we quarrel, and we have these fights. We may go into our bedroom or fight when the children aren't home, but the children pick up the anxiety. And they think the problem is them. They think there's something wrong with And in my situation, there's nobody to blame. Certainly not Eden, certainly not my mom, certainly not my dad, certainly not any of my siblings or myself, if, and certainly not God's fault. The reason why an infant dies, folks, there's no purpose, there's no reason. It's because we live in a broken world. That's it. There's no one to blame except death. How often does our inability to know who we are and our inability to regulate our own anxiety and our inability to not control our reactivity come from unconscious, unresolved issues that I am bringing to a situation. And the same is true with all of us. And that's why these four principles matter so much to me and have been so influential and so important in my life. It has been the key to healthy relationships in my life. And they're not all perfect. 